Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Isaac Matson. Isaac is a soil scientist and native of the Northwest. He currently serves as the extension agronomist for the Washington Oil Seeds Cropping Systems Project at WSU. He has been involved in research on soil health, plant root, soil interactions, soil fertility, and alternative crops. His current research focuses on stand establishment, soil fertility, and winter survival in canola. Additionally, Isaac is interested in alternative oilseed production methods such as intercropping and dual-purpose canola. He hopes to see sustainable oilseed production continue to expand and bring crop diversity to the inland Pacific Northwest. Hello, Isaac. Hello, Drew. So you've been on the show a few times. In the past, you've uh, done a lot of uh, speaking on winter canola, and particularly winter canola stand establishment and winter survival. I wonder if you would mind sharing a little bit about spring canola research being conducted on the Washington Oilseeds Cropping Systems Project. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So we've got several spring projects going on. The 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 big project that I run is these large-scale variety trials. So those are just uh, what they sound like, large-scale variety trials. We can talk about them a bit more a little later. Uh, Dr. Haiying Tao is doing some phosphorus and zinc work, both on spring and winter canola. And she's doing that at a plot scale and at a, a field scale. So that's kind of exciting to look at it at the different scales. We also um, are, are doing some tissue testing, looking at different micronutrient levels uh, around the region in spring canola, sort of trying to establish some some baselines. And then really similar to winter canola, thinking about you know stand establishment in that spring canola. This this spring especially, it's, it's been one of those, you know, you, usually we're either cold and wet or we're hot and dry, and it's been cold and dry this spring. So... I've seen canola plants really get hammered by a combination of drought and frost stress, even even in, through into late May, uh, having some some canola spring canola stands die um, due to that. So that's kind of a rough and and really thinking about how to push that research forward and learn more. You also are working on a project that I'm really excited about with uh, Mark Thorne, looking at herbicides and the different herbicide systems that we can include. Uh, with with spring canola, so everybody I think knows about the Roundup Ready, but there's also the True Flex, which is you know higher rates or later applications, uh, which opens up some opportunities. There's Liberty, there's the Clearfield uh, varieties, and and then I think you guys are even looking at some Atrazine and that and some Triazine resistant canola or tolerant canola, I think. Okay, yeah. So so those are kind of exciting. Uh, efforts to look at, especially in this area where we have such an Italian rye problem, just sort of taking over. Yeah. As you drive around here, I think you see a lot of uh, spring canola. And I think a lot of that here in the high rainfall zone is driven by um, Italian ryegrass. And I think I just saw a field that I've noticed over the years, it's had a bad um, wild oat problem and they've now got spring canola planted. 
uh, we're starting to see resistance in wild oat to a lot of a herbicide. So it might it might expand beyond Italian ryegrass. But I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. The spring canola tends to be here in the higher rainfall zone. A lot of it grown, I guess the price is not bad, but also for weed control purposes. Winter canola out in the drier areas and what, uh, just diversification, or are they tackling weed issues there as well? And- yeah, I think it's it's a combination. You know, some of those areas out there in, in the drier area, you've been basically winter wheat fallow since people tilled the ground, you know, so going on probably a hundred years of, of, of winter wheat fallow in some of those areas. And, and that's really, you know, you, you just, as in any system, if we're just growing the same crop over and over and over the, the different problems crop up that you expect, you know, so uh, different disease and weed weeds that you have trouble managing. Even with that, I mean, the fallow gives you some opportunities to manage weeds that you don't have in the annual crop region. Um, but then I think it's also my observation, just visiting with the growers out there, is you know, growing weed out there isn't as easy as um, I don't want to say it's easy to grow wheat out on the east side of the state. But you definitely have you know you have more rain, um, so less of a challenge there from a moisture standpoint. And so I think. Winter canola, you really need to put it into fallow. You can't really, or we haven't seen successfully people um, recropping with winter canola. And so I think there's actually some economics there too with with the um, growers out west. You're also, when you're looking at winter canola, predominantly non-GMO. So you're getting a little bit of a better price uh, as opposed to spring canola looking at the um, Roundup Ready primarily. Um, that's all GMO. I know when I was putting together the the proposal, the grant proposal for the work you mentioned earlier, I had to look into the to the acreage, and and I was kind of surprised at the spring canola. I believe actually there's more acres of spring canola than there are of winter canola. I don't know if that's always been the case, or if that's just more frequently as we we run out of options for controlling controlling Italian ryegrass that we've seen more spring canola move into this area. So anecdotally with my, what I call the the 60 to 80 mile an hour survey of, of Eastern Washington, the real growth over the last, you know, two, three years in canola has been spring canola. I, because I think a lot of the growers that sort of adopted it out in that um, drier sort of central Washington area, north central, they did adopt it for different reasons. And, you know, because it made sense economically. They're also closer to the plant um, where all this gets crushed, you know, so there's a little bit of a benefit there. And then the the real shift to me came with the um, legume fr- prices falling out. And and so two things happened. The Italian rye just got unbearable and the legume prices fell out, you know, because when we were sitting at 40 cents carbs, <laughs> you know, you could you could tolerate some, some weeds for that price. But now... You know, and then I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. It seems like some of the group ones are, are less effective now on our Italian rye. And so, um, you know, that, that's your only option really when, you, when you're doing garbage, from my understanding. Um, yeah. Well, we have pyroxysulfone. So, you know, the Zidua and, and Anthem Flex are still working, but that's about it. Yeah. Okay. The group ones, the group twos are all kind of history when it comes to trying to control Italian ryegrass. Yeah. So that's, and, I think, and actually wild oats. Now we're starting to get biotypes that are resistant to both those groups as well. So. Yeah, so yeah, and I think adding on to that weed control discussion, one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, there's also you know uh, more com- competition from the canola than some of our spring legumes, especially say something like lentils 
or, or chickpeas, those aren't very competitive crops. So, you know, a dense stand of, of, of canola, once you nurse it through that baby stage, can really compete really well. But, you know, if you get a, a June rain, which is kind of a joke to talk about a June rain, I feel like this year, but it, but if you get a, a May or June rain in, in your garbanzo beans, you can see a, a flush of, of weeds that you're not necessarily going to be able to deal with. You get that in canola, and if it's a good stand, you're going to have so much competition there. And so there's a little bit of a difference there too, um, not just from the herbicide standpoint, but from the sort of what this plant is doing to compete. Yeah, once it starts to bolt, it's a very competitive crop. <laughs> yes. So you you mentioned these large-scale variety trials. Can can you describe the trials in a little more detail and tell us a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with these trials? Yeah, so the, these large-scale variety trials, I would say, are, are one of the main programs I, I inherited when I took over this position. And, and what they are, they're just what they sound like. We, we go and we put in a replicated variety trial, three to four reps, and usually five varieties that we think of are, you know, regionally important varieties. And then we plant them on a large scale using whatever equipment the farmer is, is actually using. So, you know, it's however wide the drill is and however long we can put it. So um, usually somewhere between 400 and 600 feet long per strip and then, you know, 30 or 40 or whatever drill width we have wide and we originally those were sort of demonstration this is these came along when people said okay yeah fine you can grow canola in a small plot but can we really do it at the field scale and so that was the original plan was okay let, let's get some varieties out here let's let's get this at a large scale and, and really use this to demonstrate that this can be a successful crop at that large scale and then uh, as as the acreage grew and as i took over the program i've kind of tried to shift this uh, research towards more of a research focus, I would say. So we're using these sort of now as a, as a platform to launch a lot of research programs off of. So we're taking quite a few additional measurements out there. So we're doing things like stand count and uh, pod count. And we're looking at um, even in some of these microbial populations and if it varies within the field or between the varieties uh, more. So we're looking at sort of spatial variance on these things and and looking at also micronutrients within and between the varieties. So, you know, what's the shift in tissue tests across the field look like versus the, the differences you might get between varieties. And so that's kind of the the way we decided to take the program and 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 really focus on because they're large and we get to see how these things change over the landscape. There's we haven't really got all the data compiled yet, but we're really trying to push this sort of in a and I would say a geospatial direction. Um, and, and as you know, it, things vary out here. Soil varies a lot from place to place. So getting to see, you know, how this one variety does as it goes up and over a hill on the Palouse or um, something like that is, is kind of what we're looking at. Okay. I, I mentioned earlier that you, you in winter canola, you look, you've been looking at stand establishment, which sounds like you're doing the same thing in spring canola and winter survival in, in winter canola. What are some of the other things in spring canola that you're looking at besides stand establishment? Yeah, so that that's really, um, I would say the nutrients are probably okay. the, the first thing. And then I would sort of break stand establishment down into a lot of different categories, I guess. So, um, you know, I, I focused my dissertation on the, the role nutrients could play in that. So um, excess urea essentially under the seed. Um, but I like to think about the, you know, the, the insects and then um, herbicide carryover is still a really big one. Uh, with with canola, I I recommend you know you got to keep a good record of your herbicides and you got to plan 
you know, with some of those, you got to plan 28 months in advance, you know, if you're going to have canola in that field. Um, and so I, I would say that side of things. And then, um, so insects, um, fertility, and then this year, the really hard things are cold and dry. And, mm-hmm. and if I have to give any advice, it's get to moisture, no matter what, you know, it, we know canola doesn't be, like being planted deep, but it really doesn't like being planted dry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, I always say if you have to trade off one or the other, go for go for wet over shallow, and um, you might have to bump your seeding rate up if you're going to have to go deep because okay. you're going to see some attrition. And when you say deep, what are you? How deep are you talking? So you know, ideal planting depth for me for canola is if we can put it an inch or an inch and a half deep, but I think we can you can push two inches. Um, okay. If if you have to, I I've seen canola go in that deep and come out. It it looks tired when it comes out of there, you know. And and there's this other aspect that's like, okay, at what point do you say I need to think of something else to put in here? And then you've got to calculate all the economics. Okay. So so you'd advise somebody who doesn't think they can get the moisture in the top two inches, maybe to 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 go to Plan B and stay away from spring canola, maybe. Yeah, it starts thinking about something else maybe. Um, okay. And I think there's there's obviously, I mean, you can do a whole range of things with your drill to kind of dig down and right. and think about relieving some of the pressure on the packers and and things like that to encourage it to come from deeper. But okay, so what what future research projects do you have planned for spring canola? Yeah, so moving moving forward, I think I, I've talked about this on the podcast a little bit. I think this maybe my second episode or first, I don't know if someone there uh, talked about the Piola idea that was focused on winter canola. I'm really trying to get that started up in, in, in spring canola. I know several growers have tried it and, and with that one looking at sort of more of an ecological approach. So one of the really interesting findings we had in spring canola last year, uh, spring Piola. So this is for those who don't know the term, it's an intercrop of peas and canola. You harvest them together it's the messiest bulk tank you've ever seen. So, but you're gonna to need to clean it anyhow. Um, and so you get a pea yield and a canola yield. But what we started looking at is actually some of the insects in there. And it's interesting because last year in our spring piola, we saw a lot more uh, beneficial predatory insects in the um, in the intercropped than we did in the monoculture crops. So that's something I'm I'm really excited about. You know, as as far as okay. Um, can we reduce some of our insecticide inputs on this or um, re- reduce some of our fertility inputs? And then there's obviously a lot of logistical questions around a system like that. You know, you're going to need people to clean the seed and you're going to have to make sure all the economics work out. And you're going to have to make sure that the opportunity cost of, of learning this new system, because it's going to take time to learn, is actually worth it to get into. So that's, I think, where the really beginning stages. But just watching it grow in the field is is a pretty exciting thing. It, it looks like the two crops were almost made to go together. They, they sort of, uh, you know, the canola bolts, well, first the peas come out usually and then the canola kind of sits there and then the canola bolts and then the peas grow up the canola. So it's, it's kind of, I always just liken it to a little plant dance, um, the two, <laughs> yeah. two crops going together. Yeah, I could see where the peas, which are very good at emerging from, from deep depths, could help maybe the canola get out of the ground as well. And then, like you say, then after that, it's just the dance, each one helping the other. Yeah, so I, I'm, that's still the, I would say, the number one research area that I'm excited. I see a ton of potential and I see a ton of, difficulties. And so that's where I want to be working right now. Okay. Well, I certainly see a lot more spring canola 
growing around here than I have in a long time. And as you said, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Um, so if, if listeners want to go and learn a little bit more about uh, your research and how to go about growing canola spring or winter here in eastern Washington, where, where can they go to find that information? Yep. So we have a, a website. We also have a Facebook page. Um, Facebook, I, I mostly just use it for pictures. <laughs> so I just post things that I'm seeing out in the field. Uh, the the website is CSSS or CSS.WSU.EDU slash oil seeds. Um, and, and it's, we're, we're working on a reorganization of that right now. There's there's a lot of great information on that website, but you kind of have to dig for it right now. So we're hope, hoping that that'll um, uh, here sometime this year kind of get that organized, probably actually more similar to your small grains page so that it's more accessible. So all the variety trial data is on there. Another resource that I point people to is the Lind Field Day Abstracts, or I, they're called the Dryland Field Day Abstracts, but they're associated with the Lind Field Day. And we, every, you know, project that we're working on, we write, you know, just a paragraph abstract and put the most recent data in there. So if you're interested in, you know, how um, stand count relates to yield or how pod count relates to yield, every year we're updating those data sets or um, winter survival or stand establishment or even that insect and piola work I was talking about. It, it's all there um, in those abstracts and those are on the oil seeds website also. Okay, so we'll make sure we get those uh, links into the show notes so our listeners who are interested can dig a little deeper. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you liked what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lyon, that's L-Y-O-N, at wsu.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.